Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Find Woodworking Magazine's bi-weekly podcast. I'm senior web producer Ed Pernick, and joining me today are Fine Woodworking Special Projects Editor Asa Christiana yo, yo. and Fine Woodworking's Executive Art Director, fresh off the Fine Woodworking Jet, Michael Pekovich. Hey, guys. Uh, as always, I like to ask folks to spread the word about this podcast to your fellow woodworkers. Stop by our iTunes page, leave a comment, maybe a nice five-star rating. You can also check us out on iHeartRadio. Um, and uh, before we hit things off, uh, I know Asa has uh, a little something he wants to chit-chat about, and I wanted to point something out, too. I'm going to spring this on you both. Uh-oh. Um, I was just listening to uh, a recent podcast over at uh, ModernWoodworkersAssociation.com. Um, I was at Diami Plotky. Diami Plotky is one of the guys over at MWA, mm-hmm. and uh, I recently purchased a jointer from him. And while I was there to pick up the jointer with a buddy of mine, um, he asked me five questions about woodworking at, for their podcast. And I just realized that the way it comes across when he introduces me, I say, hey, how you doing, Diami? Thanks for the joiner. And then Diami says, oh, you know, I always like to hook up people that I know and da-da-da. And I, before I get a slew of angry emails saying, like, what are you, like, hitting up readers for free tools? I bought the jointer. I just wanted to point that out. Please do not forward any tools or other high-priced items to me unless your name is Tom Lee Nielsen, and my address will be emailed to you at the conclusion of this podcast. But episode. I think it was worth more than 20 bucks. Ed. <laughs> yeah, right. I don't know <laughs> if that's a, a fair deal there. <laughs> um, but anyhow, I, I just want to point that out so I don't get burned by my bosses. Uh, anyhow, <laughs> uh, so Asa... Um, it can't, you know, it can't hurt Diami's article proposals in terms of getting through our pipeline if he did give you a sweet deal on a joiner. I mean, it couldn't hurt, is all I'm saying. <laughs> wink, wink. <laughs> um, so, Asa, you uh, you had some ventures building a uh, table for your wife. Yeah. Uh, this my, week. My sort of deep thought for the day is it involves my friend Mike. And I was – my wife uh, is back in school, and she's studying in our little home office area. And she's running out of work surfaces, which happens when you have your stuff all spread out. Right. And she's been pulling over this gross chair we got from Ikea, which I'm about to throw out and laying stuff on top of it. And I said, I'm making her a little table, just a little side table. So I thought, um, I'll just go knock something out in the shop. At the same time, I'm testing some gluing equipment for our tools and materials department. And I thought I'd kill two birds with one stone and make basically a crappy table with some pine that I have. But then that thing came, you know, that sort of dark of the night kind of thing came, uh, old saying came in and haunted me and i know it's true it's like anything that's worth building if you're going to build it yes build it right that's a pitfall we fall into a lot which is i gotta go knock something out yeah and then you end up with something that you really didn't think about yeah 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 i was gonna knock it out really quick and sort of make it a throwaway but it's such a poor use of resources to do something like that i mean it would be a table i wouldn't be proud of it's nothing we would keep if if and when we ever move and uh, so I just stopped myself and went and to talk, went and talked to my old buddy, Mike, who's awesome. As we all know, we turned, a lot of us turned to Mike for design ideas. He has that ability before he even draws or whatever. He's a very good talent at, uh, aptitude for sort of seeing it. I think yeah, you can yeah, see yeah. it in your mind. No, yeah, I yeah. think you can. Um, but, uh, and so it went from being a little shaker table with the boring tapered legs to something else. And uh, I said, Mike, what can I do without making this thing take forever to build? You know, because the things I was thinking about were like carving along the end grain and just doing stuff that would have been really time consuming. Um, 
and Mike, taught, taught, we, his first idea was make the tabletop float, take the aprons, drop them down a little bit from the top of the table, mm-hmm. and make them really thin, like, uh, sorry, not very tall. Right. And uh, drop them down a half inch or so, and and then put little in, hidden cross rails inside the Just interior of the table. Just to float the top a little bit. Yeah, yep. that have little curves on them that reach up, and you screw through those up into the top, and the top appears to float. We've done it. Tim in, Rousseau. Yeah, yeah, Tim Rousseau did it. And it's like, boom, that's it. And so, uh, it, and then I sort of thought, well, maybe the top, since it's separate, wants to be a whole separate wood. I was bugged about pine being soft for a writing surface anyway. Right. And I have this really nice piece of cherry that's thick. And then we just started cooking. It's like, let's have no overhang on the tabletop at all. Let's use a thick top. Let's make it a different wood so it really appears to be separate from the table. And now I went and looked at that piece of cherry, and it's got a bunch of interesting sapwood patterns on the bottom. Awesome. Which kind of t- would tie it right into that base. It's almost the same color as the pine. So now it's turning into something really cool. 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 The interesting thing about, um, so you just made a, a comment, which is a very common remark about pine and writing tables that, you know, it's really soft and you end up writing on a piece of paper and it goes right through the paper and it indents into the surface. The, the reason that most folks don't like to build tabletops out of pine is exactly the reason why I like to build tabletops out of pine. <laughs> I have a writing desk that I, you remember the one that I built yes. I don't know, a couple of years ago? Yep. It's like a shaker writing table, three drawers. And I built, I made the top out of pine because I like that. Uh, after like two or three years of using this thing, I've got all my notes that I've written. I can see everything <laughs> I wrote or my daughter's scribbles. They're all indented into the wood. Yeah, and it gives it this cool. It's just, it's well beaten in. Nice, you know, a, it's a worn in. Patina of use. Totally, yeah, very absolutely. Nice. Yeah, Mike and I were. It's funny you mentioned that because we were talking about that too. Because I just built those big two dressers out of pine and my wife's been freaking out about them getting any dents or dings and the i've been trying to yeah <laughs> that i talked about a lot and, <laughs> I, and the dog sleeps next to it and she's scratched it a couple times and stuff right. and and i'm trying to explain to my wife the concept the japanese concept of wabi-sabi oh yes. yeah which is that newness is just a temporary state that things are that's one part of your life is when you're new it's just like a human body but there's beauty in all the parts of the Absolutely. lifetime. Yeah, yeah, and I'm down with that too. I just, you know, I just wanted a harder writing surface. All right, kill me. Right. Did you make that up, Wabi Sabi? It sounds made. You up. made that up. You totally. But did. that's how you say it, right, Mike? That is. That's, that's absolutely correct. <laughs> and I have a confession to make about helping you design that little table. I'm really just sort of paying it forward because a few years back. My wife asked me to make her a little table to put her sewing machine on so she could I love that table. sew and watch TV at the same time. And my first impetus was to go out and bang something out, get done with that so then I can get back to woodworking. And the flash of inspiration I had was John Tetro, our deputy art director extraordinaire, who's one of the most creative people I've ever met. And it's just I just said to myself, you know what? John wouldn't just make it without thinking about it everything he touches he just imparts his own little creative touch to it so i said what would john do john wouldn't just make a table in order to make something else he would do something cool so um, okay i'm gonna get really deep here okay um there's if you look back uh at sort of human evolution we were we were sort of for millions and millions and millions of years. We lived in tiny little communities, and it's sort of how we work the best. It it 
it's that little hot house of like inspiration that can happen between people. It's like if we weren't all connected here at um, the magazine, I think that's the good thing about belonging to a little woodworking guild or a club or something like that or having other woodworkers that you hang out with is because you inspire each other to new heights. It's like I always have Mike, I think a lot of us do, Mike or John or somebody here on staff to inspire you to, inspire you to do your best work. That's true. You need that. Yeah. You really need that. And I think human beings, no matter what endeavor that you're in, it works in a lot of different ways. Uh, getting together with other human beings helps us operate at our highest level, I think, rather than operating in a little vacuum off to yourself, you know, trying to be an island. Just a deep thought yeah. of the day. Well, and I think that's more of a challenge being woodworkers because as furniture makers, we're pretty solitary in terms of the craft and also fairly antisocial in terms of personality. So for Amen us to, to that. get together and sort <laughs> of, you know, cross-pollinate a little bit is always a good thing. All right. Uh, well, first question of the day is going to come from David. And David wrote in with a question for you, Mike. Cool. Um, hey, David. Apparently, he's planning to build your tool chest as featured in a recent issue. Do you remember what issue that was? Your little butternut tool chest? Yes, I do. And that issue would I be... I don't know. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyhow, trouble is, Mike... Recent. It was recent. It was recent. Uh, the trouble is that you built yours from butternut, yes. a species that's hard to get a hold of in his location unless he goes mail order, which he's not interested in doing. So he's settled on alder. Good choice. Nice and uh, light. But Pretty. He, but he can't find boards wide enough for the case side, so he'll need to glue up some panels. So with that, here are his questions. There are three. One, I believe I have to alternate the grain direction of the two boards in a panel glue-up to limit cupping in the future. How, then, do I work the final glued-up panel with my thickness planer and hand planes to avoid tear-out? Should I dimension the panel close to final thickness prior to glue-up so the final dimensioning is less risky in terms of wood movement? I think he means in terms of tear-out and things like that. Right. Um, so what's the deal here? Uh, are you supposed to follow that old adage of, you know, the, the smile on the end grain of one board and then the frown on the next board and then when you do a panel so glue-up? basically alternating the heart side of the boards in a glue-up is the thought there is that each board is, is you know, prone to cupping – um, and if you alternate that, you basically sort of even out that cupping. You end up with sort of a wave pattern at worst across this board as opposed to gluing everything up in the same grain orientation and end up with one big cup. Yeah. Um, but That was my cupping sound. I, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, David makes um, a good point that when you alternate the grain, a lot of times – the grain at the glue joints are going in two different directions. So no matter which way you plane, half that glue joint, you're going to get some tear out there. Um, which for that being one of the reasons, I don't alternate the faces of my boards when I glue up. I don't either. Um, uh, number one, I get a better grain and color match because that luster or chatoyance is going to be the same on each side of the glue joint. Um because the grain's running the same direction, and also it's much easier to mill and hand plane. So, and also, I always count on the structure of the piece itself to keep the boards Absolutely. flat. Absolutely, jo the joinery of the piece itself, the engineering of the piece, is what handles the wood movement. Yep. It's not how you arrange boards necessarily. If you could, uh, there's sort of a list of a hierarchy, a hierarchy of things that I think of not when I'm arranging boards in a panel, and I think you're the same. I think number one is looks. It's for me anyway. It's sort of like I want to 
I want, if there's two boards, I like them to either look like I intended a book match or look like they're melting into each other at the grain lines, like maybe have the grain lines be straightest at the edge or whatever. Yeah. And so I want them to look harmonious, whatever that means. Secondly, if I can also pull off at the same time getting the grain to run downhill in the same direction on both pieces so I can hand plane them all in the same direction, that's a bonus. Yes. But the last thing I'm thinking about is number three way down the list would be getting it. I mean, is it really better for the board to cup all up in one direction or to cup in a wavy fashion? I mean, you could make an argument for any of those, you know, either alternating or keeping all the smiles on the end grain in the same direction. I mean, yeah, I don't get into that too much and I haven't ever had it be a big problem. Right. And also I learned the hard way. And I think a lot of people have the idea of slicing a board and opening it up like a book. You have this book match and it's nice and symmetrical and if the grain is nice and straight at that glue joint, you think, oh, it's just going to be invisible. And then you glue it up and you finish the board and you have this nice luster. And no matter which way you turn, one of the boards looks kind of light. Yes. And the other one looks dark. And then mm. when you move the other direction, the other one looks light and the other one looks dark. That's true. Because of that, luster is exactly opposite when you book match. Now, this is cool for veneer patterns if you're doing like, you know, pie-shaped tables. Or yeah. What do you call the... Um, like the sunburst pattern. Yep, sunburst. And you book match those because you're drawing attention to those different pieces. Yep. But for a glue joint, I don't necessarily want to draw attention to it. So that yep. slip match as opposed to the book match to keep the luster even on either side of the glue joint, um, I think it hides it as opposed to and unintentionally. Can, and you can see that it. you can pick up on that before you even put finish on, right? You can lay the boards down and... It's difficult. It's tough until yeah. you really get it finished. It's right. one of those right. unexpected surprises where, oh, yeah. crap. <laughs> well, before we move on to his second question, uh, incidentally, I just want to mention that uh, chatoyants can be greatly influenced by the feng shui of the wabi-sabi in any particular type of board. That's a good point. I mean, it's, it's something to think about. I'm glad, yes. you, we, I'm glad you paused to say that. <laughs> yeah. I hate that word chatoyance, but it's the best it's word, great word for it. We sort of, yeah. I don't know if we coined that or... Is luster the same thing? Yeah, there's probably less syllables too. Yeah, less fancy. Let's Shimmeriness? Say, there you go. That's the one. Let's make that the official one. <laughs> okay. All right. So part two of David's question. Um, and this is one that I suspect that a lot of people freak out about in their minds and and because we all know that woodworkers are really anal retentive about details and oh i gotta do this just right so here it is what's the best practice for producing thinner wide panels from solid wood say i needed a 3 8 inch thick by 14 inch wide panel if i'm starting out with four quarter stock what would the milling process be like in order to avoid lots of wood movement as i take that thicker board down to final thickness when I when I glue them up at four quarter and then mill, would I glue them up at four quarter and then mill to final thickness, or can I get away with milling them first to half inch, gluing them up, and then doing final dimensioning, or maybe even veneer over plywood? David, I'll just pretend you didn't say that last line. <laughs> so, well, it's sort of you know the first question is okay. We're starting with four quarter stock and taking it down to three eighths of an inch. It's like oh, that's a lot of chips in my planer. Um, if you're starting with rough saw and four quarter, you may be able to resaw it and get yeah. pretty close to three eighths of an inch. That's where you turn the board on edge and send it through a bandsaw, right? With but, very little waste, but that would be cutting it close for a four quarter. You're cutting it close. So anyway, let's let's just assume we do need to get thinner. I think your point, um, your second take, where we're getting the individual boards down 
close to size is great. If I'm removing a lot of stock, I would let's say I am going from four quarter down to three eighths of an inch. I may take it down the first go at it. I may take it down to a half inch board, nice and flat, joint plane it. Let it set because it's going to move quite a bit. You've taken off a lot of material. How long are you going to let it sit? A couple days? Uh, a couple, three days, maybe longer if I can. Um, depends, you know, what the situation is. Yeah, a couple, three days I think is good okay. because anything longer than that, basically what you're doing is you're you're letting the stresses equalize. You're also letting any sort of uneven moisture distribution throughout the wood sort of equalize as well. But beyond that. The wood is just going to start to absorb or release moisture depending on humidity changes. So it's going to move a little bit beyond that just because it's a hygroscopic substance and it's just going to move. So beyond a certain point, it's going to keep moving, but it isn't doing you any good to wait any longer. So I get it down to about a half inch, wait a couple, three days, take it down. If my glue up is wider than my planer, I'll probably take it really close to my final dimension, glue up as close, as tight as I can, get a nice flat glue joint, and plane or scrape or sand it flush. By hand. Yep. Yeah. My, uh, Mike's giving you the safest approach for sure. I would, if I had a board to spare or even a part of a board to spare, like a 10-inch length or something of that stock, I would try to first resaw it. Like I would first joint to face just enough to get a do. good reference surface, yeah. Yeah. and I would resaw it to nine sixteen, so whatever it is, and see how much it moves. You might be surprised; it might not move very much, and you may be able to get your three eighths out of both those two, both the piece you you know that was jointed and the waste piece on the outside. You might be able to get your three eighths out of both of those, and save a ton of wood and a ton of time and a ton of wear and tear on your joiner I, I mean it's mostly the wood waste that's a bummer but uh, then after there. you bandsaw it you'd probably you probably want to let it sit for a day or two as well yeah you're pro- it's going to move after you right you'd have to take a few days and you're, you're probably not going to get away with yeah. it yeah that's but tight. it depends on how you're using that wood too i've had times where there's a slight curve to it but be but i just run it through the planer both sides i don't try to join it i just plane it on both sides to get it to uniform thickness and then because it's going to be in a frame for a frame and panel it, the the frame and panel pulls it back flat. You can flex a three eighths inch board. You know a frame and panel yes. will flex that flex right back out of it. Right. And if I'm rabbiting the edges of that panel to um to uh you know there's ways to hold it down as you rabbit it to fit in the frame or whatever that make it work. Yeah, it's a pain in the butt, but you can work around that. Yeah. 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 So the two takeaways here are take it down bit by bit mm-hmm. and relax, baby. Yeah. Oh, third takeaway. Oh. That's the beauty of air-dried lumber, getting mm. your lumber stickering it, because all the when a board warps when you resaw it, a lot of it has to do with the way that it's dried in commercially dried lumber is dried very quick, and it tends to instill a lot of tension into the board. And you can get a cup over, say, a six-inch wide board. You resaw it in half. You can get a cup as much as a quarter inch across oh, the yeah. width, and then forget it. You're you screwed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wasn't going to use that, that term, Ed, but that's... You're screwed. Thank you. Um, air-dried, I was just uh, resawing some air-dried walnut. Dead flat. Dead that's amazing. Flat. And didn't move yeah. at all. And it's mm. just like, oh my gosh, why don't I always work with this? Well, because... You don't want to go out time. and buy wet lumber and yeah. put wait, it in a lumber pile and... Wait for two years to use it. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, lastly, Mike... Where did you get your really beautiful crescent-shaped wood and brass-headed marking gauge? I would love to procure one for my shop. Oh, 
Good luck with that. That's a uh, <laughs> it's a Bridge City marking gauge. I've had that for quite a while, and unfortunately, they are known for doing short runs of very um, awesome tools, and then they yes. just sort of discontinue the tool. And unfortunately, this was probably at least 15 years old. Mm. And I just checked the website today, and it has been discontinued. So <sighs> maybe go on eBay. You might be able to find. They probably have there. another cool model, though. I mean, everything they make is cool. It's worth, yeah, Bridge City Toolworks. Take a look. They're just, I mean, some of the most creative, innovative kind of boutique tool makers around. And not like old-timey, old school. It's like embracing new technologies, new designs, um, just really gorgeous stuff. And really beautiful. If you yeah. like your tools to be beautiful, yeah, uh, that's the place to go. And expensive. If you really <laughs> like to pay a little bit more. Yes. All right. Uh, so the next question comes from Steve, and Steve writes... I recently finished a garden bench based on plans in the May-June 2008 issue of Fine Woodworking. The author made his out of teak, but since I'm not willing to mortgage my house for the lumber, I chose to use flats-on white oak. Now that it's finished and sitting in my backyard, I'm struggling with the question of finish versus no finish. I live in central California with dry, warm summers and rain in the winter months. I think I've settled on no finish. Happy to live with the graying of the wood, but am I making a big mistake by not applying a penetrating oil finish, for example? If so, what type of oil finish would you recommend for white oak in these conditions? So, I mean, normally we talk about most of our authors push pretty hard for not putting on a film finish because you're going to set yourself up for a lifetime of maintenance. Right. Um, As it chips and peels yeah, off. Yeah. And- you know, in New England and the Midwest where you get four seasons uh, and some of the South, um, just a simple oil finish is better. And if you have a harsh winter, you just take it indoors, you know, take the thing indoors and then put it back out and it'll hold up really nicely. It'll weather to a nice silver. And then you're not redoing a spar varnish like you're, you know, like you would on the deck of a boat every three oh my years gosh, or something. Imagine stripping down a varnished piece of furniture. Right. Um, that's a pain in the butt. And you don't have to do that all with oil. You could just refresh it with a light sanding, a little more oil down the road. Yeah. But I want to kick this... Well, I was thinking, Mike, you you know California because you're from there. Yeah. Would it be different out there? Could you get away with a film finish? No. No, I don't think so. Cause Same in thing. California, the sun is just is brutal. And, you know, if it's moist and damp, you know, at night and then the sun dries it out, you still have that, that moisture transfer pretty dramatically over the course of a day, not just throughout the season. And that moisture transfer, the, that wood moving is what really – um, deteriorates a film finish, um, which is why spar varnish, which is very elastic, is designed to move with the wood. But even still, you know, who wants this shiny plastic coated furniture anyway? So it can look really beautiful. Like if you're determined to make, if you have something antique or mahogany or something, and you want it to look really deep and rich, you can pull it off. You can get UV blockers and the spar varnish and all that stuff, and you can keep refinishing it as it needs it. And yeah. Mike, your comment about who wants a shiny plastic finish is going to offend a lot of people who still cover their furniture in plastic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just... Remember that? My grandmother bought a couch and <laughs> chairs. <laughs> yes. Did you my, have my that? My grandmother has the same couch. Yeah, and they'd cover it with the plastic. I think you got it from the furniture store yes. or something. And you'd never reveal that actual no, couch. It's this textured plastic, this sort of marbled, bubbled plastic. And also plastic floor runners across all the carpets. Yeah. That's oh, weird. God, the floor runners. I forgot about yes. that. And a set of plates that you never use. Yes. See, my grandmother just used a sheet. 
in in the towels in the dress up towels in the bathroom that no one was ever supposed to touch. Well, the bathroom you were never supposed to use. Don't use that bathroom. Don't use yeah. the powder rooms. <laughs> yes, don't stink that up, kids. <laughs> that is funny. That is a different time. I'm I have glad a, that um, time is. It's interesting. I have a I have a Thone Windsor chair, uh, which is kind of odd because Thone was known for those cafe chairs with the bent the, backs and whatnot. Right. But he at some point, and I have not been able to figure out when in his trajectory or the company's trajectory they made mm-hmm. Windsors it was sometime at the turn of the you know 19th or 18th sorry turn of the 19th into the 20th century at some point they made Windsors and uh I have one that my grandfather uh where he worked at US Metals in New Jersey in the early 60s one of the executives threw out a chair from their office and it was this Thone and he brought it home and it had a crack in the seat and so to fix it, instead of fixing it, what he did was he covered it in this hideous vinyl. You know, you, you take a piece of vinyl, a little bit of foam, and you cut it to fit the seat, and then you take the tacks, <laughs> and you tack it all around, and it's nice. hideous. But And I thought in recent years of, you know, taking that off, repairing the cracked seat, doing it right, you know. But then I thought, nah, you know, I like the idea that my grandfather, who incidentally I never met, you know, he, he went and he fixed it this way, and it has a charm to it. Cool. My wife hates it. Yeah. But <laughs> it's like, that was kind of neat. Um Anyhow, anyhow, if, you know what? And that's a good thing to ask. Anybody out there who knows when the Thone Company manufactured Windsor chairs hmm. um, with the armrests, that would be a... With the armrest, that style would be a... No, there's a continuous arm that where the arm goes right up yeah. into the back back rail. This is... Sack back. This is not a continuous arm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. there's a comb back Windsor where there's that backrest is this bar going Right, that's what it top. is. It's a comb back. Okay. So if you can tell me when that happened, I will send you a set of Rockler bench cookies. <laughs> I'm serious. All right, first person Still pushing those directly. bench cookies. <laughs> it's got like a whole, I've got a whole tractor trailer full of these things. Yeah. Um, so let's head into our first segment of the day. That's going to be smooth moves. What would you do with a brain if you had one? Where we cop to our most recent boneheaded moves in the workshop. And uh, I'll tell you what, uh, who's going to go first here? I'm going to give the first one to Asa. I'll go well, mine is pretty alphabetically. Quick. Mine's pretty fast, um, and it's related to that pine table I was making that Mike helped me with the design of. Um, I went ahead and milled up a bunch of pine based on my just, you know, falling out of bed kind of crappy design. And now that the design's changed... Um, I some of the pieces are unusable, but luckily, uh, because I wasn't using any of the pine pieces for the top anymore, I mm-hmm. could now put them back to use. So I basically wasted some pine starting to make a dumb table, and I should have stopped. I should have known. I should have stopped and actually designed something that was worth making. And so a little bit of wood waste went into it, you know. But but I didn't uh, sort of no deal breakers. I've still got what I need. And the, the old moving before thinking. Moving before thinking. Yeah. I got one of those this week, moving before thinking. What's that? So I uh, I was building a box and mounting some uh, side rail hinges. Um, you can look up side rail hinges online if you don't know what they are. But So I, that, I had a box lid and a box, right? And I've got to cut a mortise, a long, thin mortise, into each corner of the top and the, you know. So I decided to do it at the router table, which is kind of a pain in the butt to begin with because you have to set up stop blocks twice. So you have to be ridiculously precise when you reset your stop blocks, right? right? Because you can do two of the cuts, one cut in the lid and one cut in the base of the box, 
going the proper normal direction on the router table, right? But then to do the opposite mortises for the other side of the box, you've got to do a climb cut. So you've got to reset your stop block. No big deal. I've done it before. But I forgot to do something. So here's what happened. I reset up to do the climb cuts. And everybody knows that climb cuts are nice if you're going all the way through a piece of wood because when the bit emerges out of the wood on the other end, you don't get any blowout because you're going in the reverse direction, right? But what happens when you first enter the piece, you know, the piece of wood? That's where you get your that's where you get your blowout. So I I had a little tiny bit of blowout on the first one, then I thought, yeah, let's put some tape on this baby on the next one, you know, tape will secure things, right? Nah. Should have just went over the scrap wood bin, gotten a backer block, and then, you know, cut it with a backer block to support it against right. blowout, which was stupid. So, Mike, I'll be visiting you later today um, so that you can uh, assist me in uh, repairing the little bit of blowout that I re-glued with CA glue, but it didn't work out so great. I got to hide that. We'll just chip it off, get some Bondo. Oh, that's nice. And then we, yeah. you could sort of now you mix could. I up guess you some could paint paints it. and paint yeah. it wood tone. Yes. It's actually not a bad idea. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll talk. We'll chat. All right. Um, so, yeah, that's the thing. It's like I was thinking that, all right, I'm doing a climb cut. Don't have to worry about blowout. Um, but, yeah, no, you do have to worry about it when it's going initially going in. Just that entry cut. That entry bam. cut. Bam. Yeah. yeah. Because as that, as that cutting edge spins back out of the wood, boom, it grabs yeah. the, the grain and pulls it out. Um, so lesson learned, little reminder, think before you act. <laughs> the, the thought process wasn't complete. Um, so, Mike... Um, so we're about out of time for smooth moves. No, we're not. <laughs> Demonstration troubles. Mike, you don't have a smooth move this week. You have a super slick move. Oh, you know, only thing worse than a smooth move in your shop is oh, one yeah. uh, done in front of an audience. How big, like how big an audience? Uh, about 20, 25 people. Yeah. Mm. Um, I was at the um, New Jersey Woodworking Show a couple weekends back with Matt Kinney. We were each doing some demonstrations, and I was going to talk about using hand tools. Favorite okay. thing to talk about. Love it. And, of course, I wheeled in my travel tool chest, which we talked about we earlier. We talked about earlier, the butternut. Um, That's impressive. Yes. That's an impressive chest. It, it's very impressive. Thank you. Um, so I'm wheeling this thing in, and I go to open the lid, and the lid's locked. Nah, no you go deal. get your keys. What's the big get deal? Get my keys. Good chance to take out that beautiful yes, little key. Yes, beautiful that, key. Yes, and keep the key on my keychain. Yeah. And so okay. it's like, oh, shoot, I left my keys in my car. Ah. No, no big deal. Okay. My car is in the parking lot at the Taunton Press in Connecticut. Oh. So now I, I have this audience. We're about 10 minutes into when my hour demo is supposed to be kicking in. And I can't get my tool chest open. <laughs> so... <laughs> This is awesome. So at insult to injury, Mark Adams, who runs Mark Adams Woodworking School, happened to be demonstrating in the in the uh, room down the hall. And he stops by. It's like, oh, great. Now even Mark Adams is seeing me. So I end up borrowing a, a big old flat blade screwdriver from Mark Adams while he's sitting here watching me, along with the 25 people there to learn about hand tools. I'm, I proceed to pry the lid of my toolbox Classy. open um, Classy. until the, the lock plate bent enough for it to finally pop open. Um, fortunately, there was some minor denting to the uh, toolbox and your pride. lid itself. But major, major denting. <laughs> <laughs> major denting to my pride and reputation. So, um, 
yeah, I'm still trying to live that down, and I'm going to be teaching at Mark Adams later on this <laughs> summer. I have a feeling we're going to be revisiting this topic in front of another audience at that point in time. So, anyway. Well, Mike, for your wonderful, smooth move, you've just won yourself a set of Rockler bench cookies. There's a box <laughs> behind you. Just, I think there it. might be two more in there. Yes. <laughs> That's the, that is the best it's one the we've had thing, so far. I was talking to Mark Adams about an article because we've been working on some articles together. <laughs> and it was like the first thing out of his mouth. He's like, hey, did you talk to Mike yet? <laughs> He's like, go by his office and ask him if he needs any keys made. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway. All right. Let's, let's move on to the next question to give Mike a little space. Uh, Bob. Bob wrote in to say, uh, you've talked quite a bit about wipe-on finishes and why you like them. I've used them pretty frequently and like them for the same reasons, but I've always had a nagging question. You spread the finish around the workpiece and then wipe it off. But how hard do you wipe it off? It seems like if I try to wipe off as little as possible, I can see streaks of thicker finish when I look at it with a raking light. But if I wipe until those streaks are gone, it almost seems like I've wiped off practically everything and I'm not getting any new finish on at all. How much wiping is too much? Or how do I know what the right amount of wiping is? Or can I be any more anal retentive as a woodworker? That's a good This is the kind of crap a, that I think about all the those time, the, too. Those are the kind of questions that we feel like, yes. how, how much wiping is enough wiping? <laughs> can you ever wipe too much? All right. Yeah, probably not. Like oh, when, yeah, when you're yeah, talking yeah. about finishing. Thanks for the clarification. Yeah. This, you guys so, are terrible. I think the, the, the problem, this is Bob. This is Bob. And Bob, I'm not poking fun at you. I'm serious when I say that I ask. Yeah. This is the stuff that I rack my brain about. Bob, yeah. I, I think what's leading to your problems in the wiping off is the wiping on part. And it sounds like you're putting on a pretty heavy coat, um, which then it, it can be difficult to then, you know, wipe off enough to where you're not leaving too much on, where you get the, the streaks and runs and everything you described, or wiping too much off where, in essence, you wipe on, wipe off. That's exactly what you're doing. You're not leaving enough finish to get that build you're looking for. I think what's going to help you out is just start by putting on a really thin coat to begin with. So really, the old wiping off stage, um, if we're talking about a wiping varnish, you're not really removing any material at that point. You're just leveling out the swirl marks from when you put it on. Is there any tips on how to put on a thinner coat? Like how do you dip the rag yeah. and the whole thing? Well, what about thinning too? Um and, well, in terms of any product designed to be a wiping varnish, yep. um, wipe on poly, water locks, minwax, antique oil, all these things are already pre-thin. So I uh, just don't get the, the rag soaking wet. Mm -hmm. You know, I think you, you put it on, you know, get some light where you can sort of get a low angle, get some so you can see the reflection in the surface. You're basically just wetting the surface. You're putting on just enough so that you're not getting dry streaks as you apply. And once you do that, then you actually, you know, wipe it again with the grain with the intent of not pulling anything off, but just sort of leveling out your... Smoothing your, it out. Smoothing and isn't out. there a flow out factor after you get done wiping too? Yeah, most finishes tend to are pretty good at, at leveling. Self-leveling. Yep. It's just like when you brush, you can really drive yourself nuts. One of the big mistakes people make when they brush, and I think it's probably true of wiping too, is that... Um, you they kill themselves worrying about all those brush marks, but if you just brush and then leave it, and let it level. It le self leveling finishes yes. are 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 designed and engineered to flow out. They call it or self level. Yep. And uh, 
those brush marks will largely disappear. But if you sit there reworking it as it dries, you're, then those brush marks will actually stay. Yes. So that's a little All right. s- sticky wicket, as they say. Next question comes from Sean, and Sean writes, My question is for Mike. Recently, I was watching your video workshop episode uh, on the Arts and Crafts glass front cabinet, which was fantastic, by the way, and I noticed your 10-inch wet bench grinder lurking in the background. How do you incorporate this grinder into your sharpening system? Do you use it exclusively, or do you use it in conjunction with your Shapton glass stones? Would you please outline your sharpening workflow? Sure, I think this this might be sort of a, a uh, pins versus tails. Oh, d- moment! Cue that's the coming music. Up. That's coming up. Okay. <laughs> so first, yeah, I guess yeah. Don't give it away. So, yeah, I'm interested to see how you incorporate that into your home. So what? Um, who is this? Who wrote the question? Uh, this would be from Sean. Hey, Sean. Um, yes, I do have a Tormac uh, slow speed wet grinder. It's just basically a big uh, porous wheel, sort of like a big round water stone that spins, and there's a water trough down below that that keeps it wet. Um, works. Uh, it's slow spinning. Um, I use that pretty much only to establish a primary grind on my chisels and plane irons. That's it. There's a little buffing wheel on the other side, which I guess is good for carving tools and such, but Certainly, you never want to take your chisels or plane irons over to that, to the dark side of the Tormac. Uh, basically, <laughs> they they claim that you can put this, the chisels and stuff in the same jig. Sure, they're and selling stick them it, against that yeah, buffing because wheel. Because it's a, it's an expensive machine, and, and they're selling it as an all-in-one sharpening. Um, the the one feature of the Tormac I think it, it performs very well is establishing that emptying that your wallet grind. Number one, because it spins very slowly. Um, there's no uh, chance of burning or bluing or taking the temper out of the steel. In addition to that, the tool clamps into this little rest which slides on this bar. So you can dial in the angle of the grind very, very accurately and get a very even grind all the way across. And when it comes to the reason why that's important um, or at least beneficial is when you go to hone the secondary bevel, if your grind is is really even across, you're just removing less steel at that point, and the sharpening process goes really fast. So basically, it's a pretty expensive way to get a really nice grind, which you can also get with a high-speed grinder or just sandpaper on glass uh, if you'd like. But the Tormek for me, uh, since I have it, I use it. I love it. But you use it. So, Sean, it seems like he, what he might need to know is that you're – you're using this obviously before you hone. This is to put a hollow grind onto the bevel. Yes, and more and then more importantly for me um, is that it puts a I grind at uh, 25 degrees. So I'm establishing that initial bevel at 25 degrees, and then when I hone, I hone at a higher angle, at 30 degrees, so I'm only honing just the very tip. A secondary, very yeah. narrow bevel. And after you hone a certain number of times, that secondary bevel gets so wide, you're removing too much steel, it's taking too long to sharpen, a lot of wear and tear on your water stones. I go back to my Tormac and reestablish that lower angle bevel, so I'm once again removing just a thin line of steel when I sharpen. So, uh, hollow grind uh, to establish that initial bevel, and then you're over to your sharpening stones well, or sandpaper. You're, you're saying hollow grind, but I don't think I think because on your plane irons anyway, you're using a honing jig after that, right? Absolutely. On your water stone. So Mike doesn't really care if it's a hollow grind. A lot of ma- a, ma- a lot is made of this yeah. hollow grind because yeah. it's done Fair on enough. a wheel, but. 
it could be done as a flat bevel. Yeah. It doesn't really matter. The hollow is important if you're honing by hand without a guide. Yes. Which I used to do all the time, and you would rock the bevel of the tool yeah. until the, the leading edge and trailing edge of that hollow contacts the surface. And that's of a stone, like on a stone. Of the stone, and that's how you maintain the consistent angle to get a nice sharp edge. Right. But because I'm using a honing guide, actually the wheel of the guide acts as that second reference surface, and, the, and so that hollow is not really necessary per se. Right. Yeah. Right well, gentlemen, it's time to get real with our next segment. Let's get really real. Which is going to be pins versus tails. This is our little crossfire segment, and Mike and Asa are going to go mano a mano, duking it out over competing techniques. So, Mike, you've just established the fact that you enjoy using your slow-speed wet grinder. Absolutely. Um, Love Apparently, it. you like Love emptying it. your wallet. It's way and, better. Uh, Asa, you prefer a more typical high spe- higher-speed bench grinder yeah. uh, to get the job done with a certain type of wheel yep. on it. Uh, so I am on the fence, okay. and I'm serious about this. I, I've done both. Yep. I sort of lean towards the slower speed wet, but I've had success with your method, Asa. Yeah. So you guys have to convince me. Well, I've always been a high-speed grinder guy, but I always understood that it was because it was for kind of an unfair advantage I had because I came up through as a machinist. I started in high school and everything. My training in making things was with metal, and so when you have to grind tool bits and things like that, you're on a high-speed grinder. And I knew I had a comfort with the machine and with keeping things cool and with getting a precise grind and checking your work and everything. And no, and I was over the fear factor a lot of people have. Um, so I naturally gravitated right to that. And I could handle, just give me a simple tool rest and I could give you a, a pretty nice bevel. But and, and so, But I would sort of agree with Mike at that point that for most people... You could really screw your tools up on a high-speed grinder, too. But some things changed on the high-speed grinders. Uh, One thing is, this is kind of minor, but you can get a slower-speed version of it now. The second thing is you can get these white and blue and pink wheels or whatever that are some kind of, I guess it's called friable, but... They they break down as you sharpen. Yes, they don't gloss over like those old gray carborundum wheels and heat up your tool. They actually, the crystals keep breaking off and uh, and keep Refreshing. the wheel cool. They refresh yeah. itself, and they, it keeps the wheel cool. So that's another plus. Made it a little bit easier for people. But then the big breakthrough is that we did an article. I think it was Joel Moskowitz. Yeah. And he showed me something that I'd never seen before. It's an old-world technique where you actually round, slightly round the front. The, you the, crown it. The crown, the business edge of the grinding wheel, the front of it. And any, you know, any of these little... They make a little dressing, uh, a little wheel dresser. It's it's like it looks like a little bar of metal like with an a handle. Razor. It looks yeah, it like looks like an old fashioned razor, and there's a diamond impregnated on the front of it, and you just hold it against the wheel. It's great. They're cheap. You should get one if you have a high speed grinder. You instead of using that to impart a flat surface on the front of your wheel, you just slightly round it, and what that does is it gives you all kinds of control because now as you run your blade across it. You're only grinding in one small area at a time, and you can come in at the wheel. You don't, you don't, you don't like if, you have, if that's flat, it grinds on a whole bunch of the tool all at once. And if right. you come at the wrong angle at all, it digs in at the corners and everything. Right. This lets you, it's way more forgiving. It lets you come in at. Comes at, in gently. Yeah, you can kind of ease into the cut, yeah. and it's surprisingly controlled. And if you do that, 
I think that um, that brings high speed or slow speed, you know, uh, instead of 3,600, now they're down to like 1,800. But that plus the wheel plus rounding the thing and a, a simple little tool rest makes it so that anybody can get very even results. Um, you basically can just flip the tool over and see how the grinding's going. It's very controlled. Everybody should try it. Get yourself a tool rest. Yep. An yep. adjustable, like from Veritas, that was one I know. Yeah, that's a really good one. Uh, get, Veritas makes a great one. A nice, big, broad, flat tool rest is good. The ones that come on most grinders stink. Having a little accessory tool rest, you're right, right those are great. crap. So yeah. if you do those things, but don't, the one, then Veritas goes another step, and they have this clamp-in thing, tool holder that forces the tool along a certain path. Don't do that. Just get the little flat tool rest so you can do your sort of, so you can angle it a little bit and move it around as it feels right. But how do you, the the thing that, I think the be, the best question that comes to mind is, how do you ensure an even grind all the way across um, the cutting edge? It's you know? simple. So when you've honed the tool, yeah. that is on a flat stone and that puts a nice flat, uh, ed, that puts a nice flat straight edge mm-hmm. on the tool. You just use that shiny part as your guide as you're grinding because you're going to grind at a shallower angle than you honed at so it's going to grind the fat part of the tool first so you can sort of creep up from the back yes you're creeping up from the back of the bevel toward the cutting edge and you can just flip it over and see how you're doing Mm -hmm. it's it's a piece of cake everyone should try it and so the advantages of my system is that it's less expensive and when you get you know spend a couple hours you know after you do it a few couple times I think it's faster than Mike's way of doing it too. But, you know, I can't really say Mike's way is wrong. It's very surefire. Um, uh, so, you know, but, you know, it's not as much of a knock em, knock out, drag out fight, knock them down, well, drag them out fight. It but, might uh, be. Yeah. Well, Why do you, what's your argument for slow and wet? Well, for the, for the upside for ACE's method, um, it is faster. And, if you're trying to change the bevel angle, say you bought an old tool that's been all rounded over, and you Ooh, actually have that. to that's another advantage. Establish, you know, a new bevel angle, remove a lot of steel. Yep. Tormek can be really slow for that. Um, if you're just keeping it at the same angle but getting rid of that little honed area, I I think that's that's fine. Um, Cost wise, yeah, it's like. On the surface of it, because the Tormek is rather expensive, I think it's like uh, four hundred bucks. Four hundred bucks. They have two models. I think the the less expensive is around four hundred dollars. A lot of money. But if you don't have a grinder yet, you're going to spend a good hundred bucks plus, hundred to two hundred bucks on a grinder. Yeah, you now, can get. I think you can get a slow speed one for a hundred bucks. Good. And then, well, for my sake of argument, I'm going to spend at least hundred fifty. <laughs> so I'm going to spend hundred fifty on a grinder. Yeah. I'm going to spend fifty or sixty on a tool rest. I'm going to spend twenty or thirty on a wheel. Ten or fifteen bucks on a little dresser. Jet and Grizzly both offer sort of slow speed wet grinders too, starting I think anywhere from ninety nine up through like a hundred ninety nine bucks. So all of a sudden, if you're looking at at that type of wet yeah. grinder versus gearing up a high speed grinder, I think it's the cost wise is about a wash, but. The high-speed grinder is going to be more versatile for different things you can do with a regular shop grinder. Well, let me oh, come man, back at you. I'm, let me oof. let me come right back it's at tough. you then, sir, and say <laughs> that uh, that um, that some of the cheaper grinders that I've seen out there, the you're you're they basi- can act, they can actually explode. On the <laughs> they actually can blow your face off. No, yes. they they you're creating a wet environment in your shop, 
and so those bearings are exposed to water. Everything about the machine's exposed to water. Ah, we've had point. we've had even our Tormax kind of rust out on us in the back. Ooh, whereas my. the bench grinder will be there for the next sixty years. Sixty. Hmm. Yeah, it'll be well sixty five years. Assuming um, we have electricity at that point in time. Yeah, it's true. And I found out, uh, and and you just reminded me that it's true. A lot of times when you need to completely get rid of an edge, what you do is you grind it off square. Right. And that sort of grinding goes so much faster. On the higher speed. On the higher speed. And I would say, to Mike's point, I believe we've had in Tools and Materials a grinder that now comes with slow speed, big flat tool rests, and a friable wheel for like... About a grand. No, it's about 150 bucks or something <laughs> like that. I'm not sure who's making it, but uh, we can find out and we'll put a link onto the website. So, you know... I would just push back a little bit. There are cheaper wet grinders, but I would be concerned that maybe they won't hold up as well as the Tormek. And even the Tormek did rust out at some how, point. How long had we had that? That uh, and not this is not we're not pounding on Tormek. Six Tormac, months an, and it was aw- shot, yeah, right? Because hmm. it was an awesome tool. Yeah, it but is an how awesome long, tool. How long did it last us here in the know. shop? I don't know. Mike. You think Mike would know? Uh, Roundabout the ten fifteen years or something. Tormek I, I have in my sh- in my shop. I've had for long time so maybe the one here just got abused a little bit well there's also how many people remember we had one here that rusted out we had one that we had to replace that actually the one that quote-unquote rusted out we had to replace that's my tormac it is and it's still up and going is it Uh (laughs) wait you took that bought it yeah yeah i I had to replace the shaft with a stainless steel shaft which was sort of a retrofit for the tormac okay so So they have that so the shaft rusted out i put a new shaft in yeah and it's Best been going strong. Nice. Um, Yankee thrift. Yeah, I would just say to people, if you're getting into sharpening for the first time, I still stand by um, the high speed, you know, the fast kind of grinder. Just because you can get in for about 150 bucks, all told, I believe we'd have to put a link on that. All right, gentlemen. But I'm, I'm, but I'm not saying Mike's completely wrong. I've come to a conclusion here. Yes. All right. No what are you doing? What are you again? actually doing? Well, because I have to make the investment at yeah. some point. Hopefully my wife's not listening to this because she'll be pissed at me pissing away another bunch of money on a tool. Uh, but uh, so I was always leaning more towards the Tormek. But when I evaluate the cost of entry, I see what you're saying. When you have to get all the accessories to boot, it boosts up the cost of entry a bit, Mike. But when I evaluate the cost of entry for the for the higher speed, coupled with the fact that I don't have as much water sloshing over it and rusting things out, I think I'm gonna go with the higher speed. Oh, how sweet it okay, is! Okay, let me just oh man, <laughs> one analogy. All right, okay, your tools that you're entrusting to this grinder. Yeah. Okay, in a sense, they're your babies. All right. <laughs> now, are you gonna skimp on the car seat? Your kid is used is going into no. You're not. You're not. In the same way, the Tormac, it's like one of those big, puffy, high tech Cadillac car seats with a cup holder that's going to keep. I your, would take it if somebody gave one to me. Your baby's safe and sound, <laughs> so they treat you right when you take them to the workbench. That's all I'm saying. Wow. And I'm saying put the babies up on the roof rack. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, listen, next question comes from Gerald. Gerald wrote, I need to buy a moisture meter. I've done a little research, and there's a big difference in price between the top three American-made, Wagner, 
Lignomat, and Delmhorst, and all the Chinese knockoffs. I'm not a professional, but I'd like accuracy and relative ease of use. I'm harvesting a couple of large trees on my property and will be sawing into four-quarter boards and air-drying myself. Do I need to spend the big bucks, or will a $20 cheapo do the job? So, Well, I have a little bit of an insight into this because you guys probably knew that. Uh, that I've been working on an article of a close, what we call a closer look. It's uh, one of our departments that looks at the science of uh, of wood of woodworking, and um, this one is about wood moisture, and it's with Jerry Curry, Gerald Curry up in Maine, uh, who is really serious about moisture and wood movement, and he had some really good insights into moisture meters. The less expensive. You know, you could go as deep as you want into moisture meter technology, mm-hmm. and it's done by ohms and resistance and et cetera. But really, you can break it down very simply. The cheaper meters, uh, a lot of the, the cheapest meters are the pinless variety, and you just sort of hold them On up the to surface. the wood, and that seems like an advantage. But Jerry, after a lot of testing, and you got to understand that he knows what the moisture is of the wood in his shop anyway because... He knows the relative humidity in his shop, and he knows um, what that where, what the wood moisture would be at equilibrium if the wood's been sitting in his shop. So he knows when a moisture meter's off or when it's on. Um, he really swears by the pin-type meters. He thinks if you go with a pin-type meter from any of these reputable companies that the Is guy the mentioned. That you hammer into you the wood. You do, yeah. And that's what scares people because you think, oh, no, I don't want to put pinholes in the wood. Right, I'm ruining my wood. Yeah, don't ruin your wood, man. Um, but you just pick a part of the board that's a waste area. Yeah. I mean, there's tons of that. It's like next to a knot, not in the knot, not on the knot, but just you know, an inch away from a knot, a place that you know, somewhere toward the center of the board. You bang the pins in. You can even get a separate little attachment for your moisture, a pin moisture meter where the pins bang in separately. But there's a couple ways to do it. But these pin-type meters, um, Jerry's found to be... Uh, pretty darn accurate from any of the reputable brands. It's kind of nice to know. So the question I have... That's kind of all I know. So don't ask me any questions because I'm going to look stupid. No, it's a a bigger concept. How how accurate does it have to be if it's like, I know I got to stick my wood outside for a year anyway. And then if I bring it into my shop for, say, three or four weeks, is that as good as a moisture meter in terms of all I'm doing is getting the wood to the same relative moisture as the humidity in my shop. Well, here's the thing that to me is the big selling point is I don't know and you don't know either. But if you had a moisture meter, you would know. That's the thing. It's like you'd, you'd know. You'd, you'd know at all times. Like when you wonder, you know, what's happening, you know, how dry does – like I'm going to make these drawers. I'm going to size these drawers. And depending on the season that I'm working in – Drawers are going to expand top to bottom. I'm leaving a little gap at the top of the drawer. Now, you don't want that to be a half inch because it's going to look crappy and the drawers are going to tip forward when you pull them out and everything. So you want to minimize that gap. Well, you need to know a lot of things to know how big to make that gap. If you had a moisture meter, you could go in the house during one the course of one year and test the bottoms of tabletops and, and upholstered furniture and whatever just in places where you wouldn't see. You could you could do a, a series of tests and keep some notes, and you'd know exactly where where that moisture is going in your house. If you brought in a load of air-dried stuff from outside to inside, you'd know when it got to equilibrium. You'd have the answers to all these things because uh, 
you'd have a scientific instrument, you know. So it's a, I, it's really, you know, I do want to buy one. I haven't gotten around to it yet because I'm winging it still, like you guys. I but. did a, a blog uh, close to a year ago um, about this topic because I um, I'd noticed that Chris Bexford at the last Final Working Live he swears by this old school Delmhorst. It's the pin style. Yep. He bought it in the early 70s. It looks like set. a Geiger counter. Yeah, Comes it looks a like a box. Geiger counter, a little blue box. It's old technology. It's and the it's oldest technology. Very simple, yep. um, and it, it works really well. And uh, so I went and I found one on eBay. For, I think I paid 35 bucks, and it works fantastic. The only thing I've had to do is I haven't done it yet, but I'm planning on it. Um, it uh, I noticed that the batteries, when the batteries wear out on those older analog ones, they start giving you erroneous Okay. They start giving you readings that are like all over the map, right? Right. So that tells you, okay, I got to change the batteries. And I notice that even when I'm not using it, if I leave the battery in, oh yeah, there's a little bit of a drain. Yeah. So I'm going to put in a little toggle on/off switch. Um, but that's a great. It's it's look up. There's a blog I did. If you look up Ed Pernick uh, moisture meter on the site, there was an interesting blog on that. That was a great little unit. Yeah. And it looks cool. It's like Mike says, it looks like a Geiger counter. It's, yeah. Come on. <laughs> I would say the thing, the place where you kind of want to know it the most is. It is a lot of it is when you make a lot of drawers or chests of drawers yep. because you have to leave that wiggle room in the web frames and you have to leave that gap above the drawers. Um, that'd be a, if you, you know, it's a judgment call. I don't know if you do plan to buy, buy one, Mike. I use the one we have in the shop, <laughs> right? So you were all set, yeah, actually. But in another good reason to have one is not just for drawing your own lumber, but let's say you're working on a project and you need a few more boards for a top or something like that. So um, you bring in boards from the lumber yard, which is already kiln dried, but you don't know about the drying conditions. Maybe your shop is, you know, hot and humid and it's coming from air conditioned shop. Or oh, you can compare. Or we buy lumber from the local lumber yard, which are in these big storage houses, which are not heated in the wintertime. And you bring them into your nice heated dry shop. You want to know when that wood is ready to work. And it's really important. So what I'll do is I'll take, you know, if I'm working with cherry, I'll just take our moisture meter, which is pinless. So it's not as accurate, but I know relatively speaking, I can measure the stock that just came into the shop against cherry um, that's been in the shop for quite a while and wait until they even up. Then I know that that stock is ready. So you to don't get going. care as long as it's as long as the numbers match up. As long as yeah. the numbers match, you don't care if it's actually 7% or Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. Another question from Chris who wrote, I have a question for John Tetro. Now, John's not here right now, but I think we can answer this. Okay. I have a large amount of reclaimed lumber that I harvested from dumpsters at building demolitions and renovations in Brooklyn. They're mostly old joists and beams, easily 125 plus years old. I believe that most of it is dug fir, but I'm not entirely sure. It seems that some of it might be spruce. The lumber is very old growth, and most has very tight growth rings. After a lot of research, I don't believe there's any surefire way of identifying it without a microscope. I'm wondering if you have any insights to accurately identifying this stuff quickly and easily. Thanks. Um, we were talking about this earlier. There's, I, I, I can't conceive of any way that anybody would have framed out a building in spruce. So it's got to be dug for a yellow pine, right? I mean, it, Those would be my first two thoughts. I mean, it kind of is what it is. I mean... It doesn't mean that you're not – I mean, how important is it that you know what this is? You're just going to use it and make stuff yeah. out of it. Are you waiting so, for him to answer? The guy? I don't know. Oh, it's really important. Uh, <laughs> no, but I mean it's like, okay, it's like reclaimed wood. It was beams from an old factory. Yeah. That's the kind of wood it is. Yeah. That kind of becomes the yeah. identifier. And I just think. make something up. No one's going to know. Yeah. The thing is that 
Mimbiki. We've yeah, yeah we, no, as no, Raleigh no. Johnson. We've would say. all worked with. I've worked with fur enough. Now it has this little um, kind of glassy sheen to it mm-hmm. uh, that it gets that is recognizable it's to a me. Little pinkish too. There's like the color hue, that hue. that changes once it oxidizes a little bit, but there's a it's got a crystalline kind of yeah. quality to it. Yes, and uh, butternut is similar in that in that way. So in but butternut has very different grain appearance. So and it has and you just start to get a feel for the look and feel and sheen of different species, and it's very hard to convey that on an audio only <laughs> podcast. <Yes. laughs> but uh, you know, even the way the end grain looks and stuff like that so it's going to be hard the best thing for him to do if he really needs to know what it is is find somebody who's worked a lot with softwoods who'll take two seconds probably they might chip off away some of the old stuff to get down to the stuff underneath but um that's one thing he could do yeah and i wasn't trying to dismiss his wanting to know what kind of wood this is but but there is sort of a, a newer sort of approach to wood and where wood comes from especially working with reclaimed lumber where if you see a tabletop it's like people are more interested like oh this came from the floorboards of a shoe company and Mm -hmm. that is sort of the identifier of the wood as opposed to oh this is made from honduran mahogany you know right so a little different take you could use some general this is a you know this is old growth softwood call it or something like Mm -hmm. that you know you could all right. Well, well, the fact that the rings are really tight is awesome. Yeah. That that kind of thing yeah. means it grew up in a mature forest where it had limited access to sunlight and stuff. And that's really cool because it makes that wood a lot more dense and strong and unique. If you buy softwoods today, they're uh, my understanding is they're grown more on plantations and stuff quickly. and they yeah. quickly and the rings are farther apart yeah. and the wood is weaker and So what you're saying is send the lumber to 191 South Main Street, Newtown, Connecticut. <laughs> yeah. Oh six four seven zero, yeah. And we'll take a look. We'll take a look. Send the whole pile because we need to be sure. We'll send it all back. Don't worry. Don't worry. (laughs) Um, All right. Listen, we get lots of comments on our iTunes uh, store page as well as through email. And every week we acknowledge the kind folks who leave words of encouragement or constructive criticism up there. So here we go for this week. Solomon Northup wrote, "Great resource: The Bad Boys of Furniture." Ed is Isaiah, Mike is Chuck Daly, Matt is Rodman, and Asa would be Joe Dumars. I know <laughs> Detroit Matt... Pistons, circa 1986. <laughs> <laughs> I know Matt probably doesn't want to be Rodman, but back then Rodman was young with the fire in his eyes. <laughs> Keep up the good work. This guy just dated himself. Um, from Lathesaw, great work, love your show, thanks for a job well done. Great humor all around. It was tough to follow the lingo at first, but now I can follow it, and that is the great part, to be able to understand the talk. Just like any craft, it has its own language, and this thing we used to call Cooper, Carpenter, Cabinet Maker, etc., all rolled up into woodworking is no exception. And finally, from CPAD1615, it's an interesting handle, uh, go weekly for crying out loud. Great podcast, funny, informative, and makes me feel all warm and fuzzy inside. Go weekly for Pete's sake. Once again, go weekly, go weekly, go weekly, go weekly. Um, CPAD, by the way, is really good for wiping. I just want to throw that in. Go ahead. All right. Moving on. Well, (laughs) that about finishes. Wiping finishes. Ow. Just hurt my ears. That about wraps it up this week for Shop Talk Live. We'll be back again in 10 days on April 4th for our next episode. Not two weeks this time, folks. You're all getting a bonus episode due to my vacation last week. Sweet. In the meantime, show us a little love by leaving a comment on iTunes and by all means, click that five star rating. 
don't forget your don't forget to send your questions and comments into shoptalk at taunton.com you can catch the podcast via itunes stream it on your computer at shoptalklive.com or catch us on iHeartRadio. cheers everybody Incidentally, I just want to mention that uh, Chateauans can be greatly influenced by the feng shui of the wabi-sabi in any particular type of board. That's a good point. I mean, it's, it's something to think about. I'm glad, yes. you, we, I'm glad you paused the same.